0: passage of the First Step Act in 2018 was yet another milestone in the bipartisan movement to reform the nation's criminal justice system. One of the leaders in this effort is Brett Tolman, executive director of Right on Crime, a conservative organization supporting solutions to crime, victim restoration, rehabilitation, and reducing criminal justice system costs. Right on Crime's objective is the establishment of public safety policies that produce the best possible results at the lowest price to citizens and taxpayers. Tolman brings a unique perspective to criminal justice reform because of his service as a United States attorney for the District of Utah between 2006 and 2009, where he directed and oversaw federal criminal prosecutions. Tolman also served in Washington DC as a special advisor to U.S. Attorney General Michael Mukasey and as chief counsel of the Senate Judiciary Subcommittee for Crime and Terrorism. Brett Tolman, thanks for joining us on Hardly Working.
1: Thanks for having me, great to be with you.
0: Uh, It's terrific to have you and get a chance to talk a little bit about your work on criminal justice reform. I'd like to start off with having you walk us through your first of all your vocational journey like how did you get to become a United States attorney what was the path that kind of led you there and then what then led you on to be an advocate for criminal justice reform based on that experience
1: sure you know i i went into the law because my my father had he had been a peace officer in LA and and I had struggled early on when I was a young kid with uh, dyslexia and some other things. And my father had a law book. And uh, I remember him telling me that, you know, if you can, um, if you can read that, you can pretty much do anything. And uh, so I would sit there and I, I think it was a contract law and I would <laughs> read that. And, uh, you know, I didn't know anything about what, what I was reading, I'm sure. But it made me look in that direction. And later in life, I would go to law school. And, and I, I wish I could say that I kind of planned out my path. I I kind of did everything maybe uh, or at least according to the law schools. You know, I did everything the wrong way. I didn't have a plan, I didn't know where I wanted to work. I did have a passion. Um I wanted to be a prosecutor because uh, my family had experienced some tragedy um and I, you know, certainly you know we we had uh, seen firsthand, you know, victims, uh, the impact of of crime and um uh, you know that was uh, probably what pushed me even even more so to go in the direction of being a prosecutor and um uh, You know, I got through law school and I decided that um, I would clerk for a judge and that judge would turn out to really uh, sort of change my life in in a lot of ways. Um, His name is D. Benson and he was a former United States attorney who went on the federal district bench um, here in Utah. And we became very close. And... um, I think he's the one who probably inspired me to want to go to the U.S. Attorney's Office, and so I left his, you know, employment as a clerk and went to the U.S. Attorney's Office and was an assistant U.S. Attorney. And while I I did that for many years, almost a decade, and <clears throat> I loved my experience, I I received an award uh, from from uh, John Ashcroft for some of my work, which took me back to D.C. And while I was there, I connected with some folks who asked if I wanted to come back and work in the United States Senate. And so I did that uh, for about three or four years and um, then became chief counsel for? over crime and terrorism. Mm. And uh, it was there that um, I, I I got lucky actually, if I, you know, truth be told, I got very lucky and, and myself and another attorney named Ted Lehman, we were asked to, to craft an amendment the gun liability bill was on the floor, and McConnell had asked for an amendment that was very important to the bill actually passing, and we crafted that, and we got lucky and it passed and uh, that got me to the White House and to meet the president and and then, from there, um, you know I would eventually find myself being nominated by President Bush to be the u s attorney and uh, so you know, a little long-winded, but it was uh, definitely not some a career path or or a way to get uh, to become a U.S. Attorney that I ever you know planned out. I can say, and and uh, a lot of it was was really just luck.
0: Yeah, I, I just yesterday I was giving a talk to um, some of our interns here at AEI and sort of giving them my my five rules on vocation. And my first rule is that there is no plan. Uh, That that we kind of deceive ourselves if we think that we can, you know, sort of map out a future. um, And and the route from where we started to where we end up uh, has a lot of twists and turns in it that we never anticipated. The only purpose of planning really is to get to know yourself a little bit, you know, and what you're interested in and... Oh, that's great advice. Yeah, wait. I wholeheartedly believe that. <laughs> yeah, so that that's a fascinating story. Who did you? You said you worked in the Senate. Was it just on the committee or the subcommittee? I should say, or were you attached to when, a senator?
1: Yeah, when I first went over there, I worked for um, Senator Hatch, who was chairman right. of the Judiciary, and um, I was assigned to the committee, um, the full committee, and was a counsel there. And then when um, Arlen Spector took over, he uh, interviewed me in one of my more um, uh, crazy interviews I think I've ever had in my life. And uh, he asked me if I, you know, regretted not going to Harvard or Yale. And uh, I said, <laughs> well, I um, I don't think I can answer that. And he said, why? And I said, well, if I say yes, I regretted it, you might question my judgment. And if I said, no, I didn't, you might question my honesty. <laughs> <laughs> and he kind of liked that answer and laughed. And uh, and then uh, he kept me on. He said, he'll do. I remember ah, okay. chief of staff, he'll do. And then uh, so I became, you know, um, chief counsel over crime and terrorism for the full committee. And, uh, you know, I would later become the U.S. attorney and, uh, um you know, I thought I kind of thought that uh, that would be the rest of my um, my career would be you know, working either as U.S. attorney or working in the Department of Justice or maybe even Washington, D.C. But I did that. I finished up as U.S. attorney. Obama didn't want to keep, you know, Bush appointees. So we were all. Yes, I, I, recall. I recall. I yeah. recall. Yeah. We were one after another kind of leaving. And, you know, it was really private practice where. And my experience as a prosecutor that really made me want to change the criminal justice system, you know, to fix a lot of the broken parts that I became aware of.
0: Yeah, that's where I wanted to go next, actually, was, okay, so you you had this very, uh, Judge Benson was big influence. And you had this time uh, as a U.S. attorney, on, you know, or in the Senate, then the U.S. attorney. That seems like a sharp corner of change in direction. So wh- what was that about?
1: When I was an assistant U.S. attorney, and I, you know, I looked back, there were a couple of cases that were really important in fashioning my desire and my passion for changing the criminal justice system. I had, I had one case in which um, I charged a guy you know, with a what's called a Hobbs Act case, and you know, a, basically, it's a Federal burgl- burglary—it's you know using using a gun to, to go into a, an institution that deals in interstate commerce, and that can be anything nowadays. So you know, Seven Eleven or a Kentucky Fried Chicken or anything like that. And you know, he, yeah, so I charged this case, and he wanted to talk to me, which I hadn't had very often. You know, you you, you rarely talk to you know the target of an investigation. they've sure. got lawyers, etc. He asked to speak with me and he wanted to speak with the FBI agent that investigated the case. It's very unusual. And we sat down and uh, long story short, he he basically confessed about 26, um, 20, I think it was 26 different robberies. But in the end, he said, I did not commit this one. Mm. And uh, so we got out of it. And I asked the agent if he was bothered by that. And uh, he said, no, this guy, he knows he's facing a lot longer sentence. So he's just telling us, you know, and I said, well, it kind of bothers me. We you just, just do me a favor and start at the beginning, go back and reinvestigate this case. Let's see what we've got. And it turns out we had the wrong man. Mm. And, uh, it was, I I was I was 100% sure, 100% sure that we had the right guy when, when I started that case. And so that was an, an, uh, you know, an eye opening experience. And, and then, um, I had another case that was very impactful where it was a kid with virtually no criminal history and, um, he had a, uh, what amounted to basically a bad, a bad night. His girlfriend broke up with him and he made some bad decisions. He, Went on the run, and cops started chasing him And for speeding, and then he made it worse. And then he got out, and he carjacked two different cars. And certainly, you know, a, a crime that is worth investigating and punishing. But the way the guidelines were in the federal system, he was looking at over 150 years in federal prison. Mm. And uh, I had to get special permission all the way to the par- to, to the Department of Justice to offer him 35 years mm. in federal prison. And he accepted it and he pled guilty. Ironically, he was sentenced, he was facing that much time because of a malfunction in the statute that got fixed in the First Step Act, but it Mm. was not retroactive. So he's still in prison, even though today he would not be prosecuted.
0: Oh my goodness. um,
1: For what, what, you know. The way in which he was. And so that's uh, that's where it began. And I started getting a real passion for it as I saw a lot of these and how I saw that the, you know, the system is has, has got a, you know, it's one of the last areas of the government where we really haven't held them accountable, um, you know, for the power that we give them, the prosecution, you know, from prosecutors to judges to everyone involved in the criminal justice system.
0: Why do you think that is?
1: It's fascinating to me that conservatives, you know, they really want to rein in government, but they, um, they've they been, um, you know, really reluctant because I think, you know, we, we have such foundation in, you know, punishment and, and being tough on crime as it's been defined. And then on the left, you have individuals that, you know, that you have the left claiming and wanting to reform the system. But you see what happens when they have power. Sometimes they're even worse. And uh, and so I, I'm shocked that it, that it happened and we've allowed it to happen. But I'm encouraged that, you know, both sides now, I think, are starting to see that, you know, some big changes have got to be
0: made because we can't stay on the trajectory that we're on. I, of course, I agree with that. I don't think we can stay on this trajectory, and a little bit later we'll explore, you know, some of those dynamics. Um, so you 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 finished up your service in the Bush administration, um, and and uh, and then what happened to you after that?
1: So I worked in private practice for you know over a decade, and represented companies and defendants, individual defendants, and it gave me um, I'm so grateful for that time. Because it rounded out my legal experience and gave me a much more grounded and better foundation to understand a lot of the issues in the criminal justice system, and and so it, it connected me also with you know many advocates in this group, and I started working with the advocates, and and then um, I got a call uh, from Jared Kushner who wanted me to come help him on criminal justice issues, and so that would begin you know, about a three-year um, experience where I got to uh, advise, you know, on issues affecting the criminal, federal criminal justice system and w- advising the White House and working with them on the First Step Act and working with, you know, members of Congress. And my passion for it just really grew. But I never, I never thought that, um, I thought I would just do that forever. I started the Tolman Group, which is a policy group and a law firm and policy group to to, you know, hold government accountable and reform certain aspects of the government. But in the midst of that, you know, best laid plans, I get a call from Doug Deason and a couple of folks at Right on Crime. And they said, hey, we, we want you to come and be the executive director for Right on Crime. And my initial response was, oh, that you know, I'm probably not going to do this. And I started looking at it and thinking about it and praying about it and feeling like, I think this might be exactly what I'm supposed to be doing, mm. and uh, sure enough, we, you know, they they gave me wide latitude to to, you know, implement a a broader vision, and uh, you know, right on crime is, is in my opinion one of the most important uh, organizations out there because it's the one organization that really wants to change the criminal justice system, but isn't going to forget victims of crime and isn't going to jeopardize public safety. And mm-hmm. so it was a real natural fit for me, um, you know, because my time as a prosecutor, I'm very proud of a lot of you know what I did. And yet I could acknowledge that we can do way better than we are. And so that's where I'm at now. The executive director, we're in nine states. We've expanded to nine states, um, not just Texas. And uh, we are looking to be in over 20 states in a matter of a few years, and, and our hope is that we start to change the narrative in, in conservative states across this country that you know that they're needed, that they need to hold the criminal justice system accountable.
0: Right. You have to. We have to, you know, of course, support our police. We need we need them. They you know, and our criminal justice system. We need them to. That's right carry out critical functions, um, but we need to make sure that uh, they do it uh, in, a, in a way that's consistent with um, everybody's rights um, under the Constitution. So it's really great. So Right on Crime, then, is a kind of a policy advocacy group. Uh, and you are working with state legislators, governors, to advocate for key reforms of the system. What and if any of that's not right you can correct me but what are some of the main issues kind of on the right on crime agenda
1: yeah and, and you do have that right we you know we're a we're really steeped in research and data and that's been my central sort of request of all of our you know team so we also have a, a national policy director that is you know focused on the federal and the national policies you know with respect to issues but we i didn't want to take a one size sort of fits all approach meaning i didn't want to say okay bail reform is really important to us or you know sentencing reform is really important and then just push Top down into all of these states, what we thought the agenda was. Mm-hmm. Instead, I, you know, I require a couple of things. One, that every state we're in, that we have a state director who is, lives in that community, who has some background and some ability to be able to, you know, identify what are some of the issues that are really needing. You know, us to weigh in on and every state and nationally, it's different. If you take the national side, we're, we're supporting, you know, getting rid of the disparity in, you know, the crack powder cocaine disparity. And we're working hard to try to help those that are, you know, members of Congress that are pushing that. And, and there's, there's other bills that we think are good policy that we're working on. But you take a state like, um, you know, you take a state like Texas. They needed, they needed some real adjustments to bail reform. They have a, you know, a right to bail. It's written in their constitution. <clears throat> but what we found is oftentimes those that couldn't afford bail were no risk of, you know, a danger to the community. And those who could post bail, many of whom became, you know, they, they were out it didn't matter how, you know, how dangerous they might be to the community or not. And so we worked in Texas to try to change a lot of the bail system issues. And and we work in, um, you know, we're in Oklahoma right now, and the governor has asked us to weigh in on how to decrease the number of people that are incarcerated because they have a, a, an incarceration problem that they can't sustain. And, um, and so we're helping them, you know, statue by statue, doing some analysis that, that may help with them, you know, the legislature and the governor that want to change that. And, you know, Mississippi, we're, we're working on reentry and partnering with businesses to try to hire more individuals that are out, coming out of prison because we know that will greatly affect recidivism. And so I rely a lot on the, the, the state directors that are, you know, boots on the ground to identify and then you know the issues that we want to weigh in on, and then work together to to try to affect change there.
0: Yeah, so it's a it's contextualized. You're looking at sort of what's going on in each state and what kind of needs to you know coming alongside those states to support reform rather than uh, being the pros from Dover with you know the prefabbed bill that um, is going to is going to fix the problem. So that, I think that's, I think that's exactly the right approach. I'd like you to talk- I do too. And I, yeah. I, I got
1: that because I noticed that a lot of the national advocacy groups and the, the left does this a lot. They mm-hmm. they have an issue, they send a team of people in, those team of people tell the governor and they tell the legislators what they should be doing, and then they're gone. Mm-hmm. And
0: I never, I didn't want that. I didn't see it as being effective. And the winds were. Few and far between, and I would think, think kind of ephemeral, example. right? I mean, it, it's just so much yeah. more than even getting the bill passed. I mean, the the whole implementation and making it Very, effective. Yep.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I mean, you've got states like Florida that they they don't have parole. Very few people understand what the impact of not having parole. So um, we're gonna we're gonna work, and that might take us two, three years. It's a, you know, right. I'm trying to take a long-term view on making real and substantive changes.
0: Yeah, boy, no parole. And you're going from no parole to a parole system. That's a major restructuring. So, yeah, I, that's, that's a great vision for an organization. Not many groups kind of take that approach. Let me ask you, go back to the First Step Act. Um, you, you know, you Jared sure. Kushner called you up and said, hey, buddy, need your help. Can you give us a little bit of the history, according to Brett Tolman, on how that bill came together?
1: Yeah, I sure will. You know, it's funny because I I, I worked with you know several advocates uh, when Obama was president. You know, we were working very hard, um, and I was one of the individuals that was working to you know with Senators Cornyn, um, Grassley, Lee, and Hatch. And, you know, when I first started that that work under Obama, people said, well, you're not going to get conservatives to do any of this kind of stuff. And I said, well, you know, it's worth trying. Let's see what we can do. But I had the secret, you know, I I had one secret that they didn't know about. And that was that Senator Lee and I were very close, very good friends. And Mm -hmm. I knew his positions on wanting to fix some of the things in the criminal justice system because we had we had commuted together, had our first few jobs together. We're very close. And uh, we talked a lot about it. And and we just started working, and I, I helped draft uh, you know portions of the Corrections Act, which was a predecessor bill, and the uh, Fair Sentencing Act, which was another pre- uh, predecessor bill to the First Step Act. When President Trump won, I remember having this feeling like uh, it, at first I was frustrated that Obama didn't do more to get either of those bills passed. I mean, virtually did nothing, which was crazy because you had some conservatives that were you know willing to push this and. He had, you know, he certainly had an ability, but nothing happened. And then when Trump got elected, I thought, well, this is not going to, this is going to get worse (laughs) because I had heard some of the things he had said. And and I thought that he might take a, a, you know, a historically what we call tough on crime approach that was really, you know, not good for changing the system. Um, fixing some of those things, but I was surprised, and and I give a ton of credit to, to Jared and his team, Brooke Rollins, <clears throat> when she joined, and she's you know one of the founders of, of the Texas Public Policy Foundation, um, and Right on Crime. So when that when they when they got together and they started eyeing this as a way to to really you know affect change, when I first my very first meeting in in the White House meeting with them you know early on in their administration i was very doubtful and i came out of that meeting so impressed at the vision the the commitment and i i, I never lost that impression over the entire time and then leading up to the first impact i there's a hundreds hundreds of people that need and deserve credit and i'm just one of many that worked very hard and pushed, you know, Congress and advised on the statutes and tried to effect good change. But I will tell you that um, I think the two most important, you know, uh, individuals on the conservative side were Senator Lee and Senator Grassley. Hmm. And then on the Democrat side, Senator Durbin was, you know, the Democrats had always taken a, uh, an all or nothing approach, and they're increasingly doing that. Um, the left just wants, you know, everything or nothing. And Durbin, to his credit, was really willing to roll up sleeves and work with Grassley and Lee and others to try to fashion a bill that may not, you know, get everything that, that is needed to be changed. But it was substantial and it was going to have a, a, a
0: big impact in, in the lives of thousands. That's interesting because it kind of goes to sort of what's what happened with uh, criminal justice this year. Um, is that your take on it? That uh, that the Democrats negotiating Booker and I've forgotten a uh, Barbara Lee is that who it is on the on the House side that they just took an inflexible position on. Uh, and that, and yeah, I think
1: they're starting. Yeah, I think they're get, taking a, a, a far more inflexible position. And, you know, it's interesting because you have the ACLU, for example, that was, you know, pushing and driving and, and kind of, you know, helpful partner on a lot of these issues where we started to hear from them. No, you know, they're they don't want just a few, you know, policing reforms, for example, mm-hmm. instead They they were buying into all of this really far left, you know, defund the police type, um, um, you know, changes and arguments. And that's just a nonstarter for for those on the right who really value having, you know, a good message as well as, you know, changes that are, uh, you know, modest or at least backed by data and research that they're going to work. And so I see now the divide even bigger than than it ever has been.
0: So, uh, so you you think it was primarily the funding issues and not qualified immunity that sort of ground things to a halt?
1: Oh, I think qualified immunity was you know substantively. There's you know that was probably the biggest issue in terms mm-hmm. of you know dividing the dividing folks. You know, it's interesting though because if you look at qualified immunity.
0: Why don't we uh why don't you give us a quick definition qualified immunity just in case there are people listening who... sure so yeah. you know the question becomes can you hold a police officer you know
1: can you hold them accountable for you know misconduct and there's a couple of factors that make it almost impossible to hold a you know a police officer accountable you know the one factor is qualified immunity which has been allowed to grow and in in essence. It has developed into a system where if the police officer you know is subjectively believed that the conduct he was you know alleged to have committed uh, was was required, then you're you're not going to be able to hold him accountable for it. And then the other the other part of the issue is if the officer committed a crime, you know, qualified immunity protects them to to some degree, but if it doesn't protect them all the way, then the you know police unions and and uh, you know they they step in and have negotiated um, ways to investigate officer misconduct that that in large part really handcuffs you know any investigator that would investigate an officer, and so you have this it's i it was ironic to me that you know while the right you know wasn't going to accept qualified immunity change you know getting rid of qualified immunity and that's basically all the left wanted for those of us that have kind of been in the issue um there are changes that could be made mm-hmm. in which you could have greater accountability mm-hmm. without you know Making officers feel like they can't do their jobs, and um, that's what was lost. Once that, once the polarization,
0: you know, the political. So, what are the other what are the other mechanisms for increasing accountability, or potential you know, if, p- possible mechanisms? I should say.
1: Yeah, I mean, one one possible way is 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 actually reining in qualified immunity a bit, um, bringing bringing that um, you know so that. When a police officer is accused of committing a crime that, you know, there may be accountability um, there. The the other the other you don't have to eliminate, you know, you don't have to eliminate qualified immunity. You could you could make, you know, the 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 state or the county or the city or however you wanted to do it. You could have them have to be, you know, financially liable for some of those actions so that you didn't expose the officer to that. Um, while at the same time holding the officer accountable, so there's there's ways you could change that on that side. The other, the other would be to uh, a couple of things I think are important. You could certainly limit the power of you know some of these police organizations to dictate how an officer is you know misconduct is investigated. Um, there's also you know very few people know one of the big problems is you might have a finding that an officer committed misconduct. that officer in many jurisdictions, if he or she leaves before the the final you know before the finding has been finalized um, then they could join another force and mm-hmm. you would never know that that officer actually has a pretty poor history uh-huh. um, you know of of misconduct. So then you get these same sometimes you get these same bad officers that are going bouncing around. So there's just things like that where we can start to change and address. And and that doesn't even count, you know, um, no knock warrants, for example, and, you know, mm-hmm. making sure that we're not just using those. We've expanded their use so much that, um, you know, you you have the Breonna Taylor sure. circumstance that at least it, you know, brought up that that issue. Well. There are conservatives and police, you know, police uh, um, officers and and chiefs of police and sheriffs who will acknowledge that there's things like that where you could change that, you can make changes, and it doesn't jeopardize the officer's ability to do their job, but it sure might give the public a lot more confidence that they're wielding their power
0: appropriately. So I don't know if you've got your sort of ear. To the ground, I'm sure you do. Uh, do you think it? Do you think further reform is dead for foreseeable future?
1: You know, it's a great question. I don't. I don't think it's dead. Uh, what I what I'm starting to see is so. Let's take the state. You've mm. got um, you take Governor Stitt in Oklahoma, or Governor Reeves in Mississippi, Governor Lee in Tennessee, Governor Abbott in Texas. Every single one of those governors has publicly indicated they have as a real high priority in their, you know, their agenda um, to make changes to the criminal justice system to allow, you know, and and they they all have different priorities, but many of them are similar and and a lot of them are driven because they want to start looking at folks redemptively again. They want to start seeing that, you know, 95% of these people are coming out of prison What shape are they going to be in when they get out? And do we have to have so many in there? And when they do get out, can we can we do a better job of helping them have a job or get an education? And, you know, we need to do our part if we're going to ask them
0: to do their that's hopeful I mean'm I'm, I'm glad yeah. that as with so many issues there's maybe gridlock here in DC but that doesn't mean that it's gridlock all the way down uh, and that there's some still some hope for progress um, down there I my My initial exposure to this issue was in, you know, I joined the Bush administration in 2001 in the Labor Department, and I was running the Faith-Based and Community Initiative Office at DOL. And I just, everywhere I went when I was traveling with talking to community-based organizations, reentry kept coming up. You know, it's like, this is our issue. We can't. You know, we're trying to hold these communities together and returning prisoners are making that just exponentially more difficult. I mean, they're just coming home and they're committing crimes and we, we can't, we got to do a better job of reintegrating these people. So we put together a project at DOL uh, using some money that Congress kept appropriating to DOL and DOL would just turn over to DOJ and not do anything with it. Um, of course, <laughs> yeah. So so then we so well we can do better than that. You know we can we can try some other things and and um, we eventually got a line into the 2004 State of the Union address for the you know the the president's prisoner reentry initiative. Uh, and I will never forget sitting there and watching that um, address. And I had recruited one of the people that was in the box with the first lady and. Uh, a guy who runs an organization up in New York called Julio, his name is Julio Medina. Um, But uh, I'll never forget when he, you know, said, we need to make sure that when the gates open, you know, that there's somebody to, you know, receive people returning from prisons. And I think the Democrats and the Republicans were kind of equally shocked, you know, that we had a Republican president talking you know taking the lead on criminal justice reform and I think it really right. un- unlocked uh the second chance act um, and made that made that possible was you know presidential leadership which we didn't we didn't get till four years later but we got it um yeah you got it and what a great, what a great bill I mean it, it really was you know a terrific bill and I I guess and we talked about this uh, and at, at the dinner where we met but it's like the whole movement has been premised on this bipartisan agreement that we want to do something about this problem that mass incarceration, uh, you know, hasn't given us exactly what we want. Um, not that it's been a total failure, but it hasn't given us what we what we hoped for. We need something different, uh, and that that bipartisan agreement around that issue has been. Critical to advancing this stuff, and I'm just I, I'm interested what you have to say about it. But I'm just really worried, um, at least at the federal level, that that uh, agreement has it is either breaking down or it has already. Yeah,
1: and you know, thanks for kind of filling in some of that history for me. I've always kind of wondered about the back story on some of that um, because it's. It was, it was, you know, just like you know, Trump doing the first step act. The conservatives coming in may not have, we may not have gotten, you know, a lot of what needed to be done, uh, you know, through legislation or or what what have you. But the message became very clear that it was a, a very safe and important place for, you know other conservatives to be engaged in. And I think that's going to pay dividends going forward. I, I, I really do. I think conservatives right now are the most important voice because mm. they're they're willing to say, yes, crime, for example, is increasing over here, but that doesn't mean we can't, you know, change, you know, certain aspects of, of the criminal justice system. And I, I like to say that really the what we should be talking about is that if you want to be tough on crime, it's not just adding years to a, an individual uh, defendant's sentence. Um, it's it's actually changing the criminal justice system that so that it reduces crime. And you cannot reduce crime if you're not looking at recidivism. If you're not looking at what affects recidivism, which is jobs, which is you know um, opportunities, education, those sort of things. And we are also learning quite a bit about you know, even things from, you know, what are the effects of solitary confinement on nonviolent, mm. Uh, mm. you know, prisoners? And so I'm hopeful that by conservatives embracing this, not getting afraid of rising crimes, but and, and addressing this through data and research, that the conservatives are going to be here for a long time. Mm. The question is going to be, what about the left? Who's some, some? It just feels sometimes that they're just, you know, we're not going to bridge that gap. Well, just today, I had a conversation with um, a an individual who is in charge of a very large fund to fund, you know, criminal justice reform. And she's, you know, left and uh, center, and and yet she told me she thinks there's going to be a course correction. She's starting to see on the left a course correction where they realize. They've been very unproductive, and their sort of attitude, and and where they've gone, and and how they're you know damaging their very you know, the very efforts to try to change the system. She sees a course correction coming, and you know maybe sooner than than later. And if that's the case, we're going to see this might be continue to be one of the areas,
0: one of the few areas where we can work together uh, going into the next few years. I I. I... Fervently pray that you are correct on that. Um, I'm. I'm you also. Do. I'm also worried. I mean, I'm glad to hear that there's this like people maybe coming to their senses a little bit on the left. Uh, I see it. Right. I. You know, it's, it's not just criminal justice reform. There are a whole bunch of issues that are. I think the. You know, the Build Back Better legislation has been a. Case in point of like, yeah. you really need to scale your ambition to what you can actually reasonably hope to do, rather than going all in and say I won't I won't take anything less than the max. So I I, I maybe everybody's starting to sober up. What do you make of some of the voices on the right though that are I feel like there's some opportunistic, and I want to get to the crimes spike in a second, but I feel like there's a little bit of opportunistic trying to um, reinvigorate the tough on crime, uh, harsh sentencing, harsh, just harsh treatment that's kind of coming out of, you know, the riots uh, following George Floyd and, you know, and then just like this idea that that the conservative base, the Republican base Really does back the blue, you know, and and so why why aren't we why are we even talking about criminal justice reform? Are, do you pick that up or not?
1: Yes, absolutely. There's opportunists is uh, probably a, a great description of it, and I see I see two things. I see some of it is driven by those who have power that don't want to see it reined in. And by that, I mean, you know, a lot of prosecutors across the country are starting to rally and react to, you know, the changes and they're using every instance they can to beat that drum that, you know, crime is on the increase and look at all this. And this is all a direct result. So what I, I think it's a storm that has to be weathered, mm. but we don't have to hide and, and bunker down. I think we can come out swinging. We can mm-hmm. come out and start to show you know, a lot of their analysis on the data is not great. And they certainly don't have an answer for when, you know, an area in the country decides to take a chance and do some, you know, make some changes. You take this small, you know, small county in Arizona, for example, where the DA just recently decided, I'm going to start asking for less time for some of the people I prosecute that I think don't need to serve as long as they are. And I'm going to start uh, collecting the data on it, and I'm going to also, um, I'm going to not pursue certain, uh, you know, as, as vigorously as I had certain certain types of crimes. If I can do a diversion or something, up. He's a conservative. He's in a mm-hmm. small county. He starts tracking the data, and he starts noticing that his crime rate and his recidivism rate go down, mm-hmm. and he sees it go down, you know, quite a bit. And now he's he's pushing back on colleagues that that seem to have this you know this contrary message, and so that's what we need. We need more individuals that are you know that do have the power to start to see. And I don't think we do it without data, and without mm. showing best practices, and without you know showing them that somebody pulled this off and it was done in a way that's thoughtful. And that's hopefully what Right on Crime can do is provide that data. That research, best practices, and, and give them confidence that they're going to do something. If they're going to make a change, we're going to take it one bite of the apple at a time. We don't have to consume the whole apple.
0: Uh, uh, terrific. That's great. Let's, but let, let's drill in a little bit uh, on the crime and the increase in crime that we've experienced. We know we've seen a spike in violent crime, murder in particular, um, at least in some neighborhoods, in some big cities, most of our big cities. What do you think's going on, and do you think we're going to see additional rises, not necessarily in violent crime, but maybe nonviolent crimes, robberies and and things like that?
1: So great question because I think we what we're seeing is now, it's not necessarily true to say that it's it's only in areas where uh, you know, crime has risen only in areas that are controlled by in blue cities or blue states. That's not true. Yeah. There's crime is rising, in, but it's certain crime and it's in certain areas. And but I will I will tell you, let's look at some major factors when you have California or when you have um, Portland indicating that they're not going to prosecute certain kinds of c- cases. And then you see spikes in those cases mm-hmm. it's no coincidence and right. and and this is happening across the country in certain areas and it lends itself to a a thought and a philosophy that can be adopted by individuals who previously used to think you know there's always the risk that you're going to get thrown in jail when you take that away the perception of it is the most important deterrent than than mm-hmm. than anything else you have it's not the length of time, it's the predictability of being right. caught that, that is important. And and in the other, you know, in the other areas where we see the the rise in, you know, for example, the the murder rates, there's in some of those areas we're seeing decreases in other types of crimes that have been on the rise. And so a real honest assessment of the factors why. And there are some people that are digging into why. We still don't know, you know, but there's certainly, you've got the pandemic, you've got lockdowns, you've got, you know, political unrest, and you, you've you got a lot of factors that you can start to see, um, you know, not having kids in school, for example, not having, you know, a a, a sound approach in Chicago for, for the shootings and what's going on. All that adds to very predictably that we would see spikes in certain areas and in certain types of crime. Mm-hmm. So now I'm hopeful that we you know, can start to see that accurately and start to address it through policy. But typically in these situations, what you fear is... Policy that is emotional and a knee-jerk reaction mm-hmm. to a problem, rather than thoughtful analysis and, and looking at what does does work and what doesn't.
0: Yeah. Hopefully, we can provide that voice. Yeah, need a scalpel here, not a meat cleaver in terms of policy. Yeah, you know, yeah. Um, exactly. I, I agree. I mean, in looking at the data, what it seems to me is, I think that the the effect of the shutdowns, of the lockdowns. Um, in terms of the way that they impacted the organizations that that are working to divert people from criminal activity, I think that may be uh, a, a very, you know, an important, significant con- contributor here. Um, you know, it's not just that people were cooped up or in a bad mood or, you know, <clears throat> but the, but the organizations that were, you know, before on the street working with people... Trying to you know keep things from getting out of hand, uh, they they were shut down, and I think when they got shut yeah. down, a lot of desperate people, you know, they didn't don't even I think realize sometimes how desperate they are um, in terms of their psychological and emotional state. Um, just didn't have anywhere to go, uh, and I I, just,
1: I think that's right, and we don't know yeah. the full repercussion of all those lock- lockdowns. It's going to take a while.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So um, we'll wrap up here on this question of uh, I'd like you to, you know, put on your your special glasses that allow you to look into the deep future um, uh, <laughs> without without with 100 uh, percent accuracy, of course. Um, uh, what Where do you see this issue going in the next 10 years? I think that
1: when. The Democrats experienced some losses uh, at the polls. I think they'll even more quickly recognize they've got to come back to, um, you know, working together and ground themselves in a little more center, you know, center left, center right, coming together and dictating good policy because the the extremes on both sides are, you know, untenable. And so, I see those losses will come. And I think that's a good thing. Um, I also see there is a generational shift that I, that I, I see is occurring. And that is an increase of mistrust in the government and that's not a bad thing and i think an increase in sensitivity to how large the criminal justice system has become mm. in terms of how many people it affects and it's there are some really motivated unlike before motivated and well funded and and you know businesses taking a hard look at trying to contribute and so i see in 10 years I, th- I see major changes in you know well over half the states addressing over incarceration and over punishment and a lot of, of effort time and money put being put into um, reentry and mm-hmm. getting these folks into jobs and getting a, rid of you know all the barriers that are there um, some of them, you know, real barriers and others' perception barriers, mm-hmm. and getting rid of those. But I see massive impact on the reentry side over the next ten
0: years. Wow, that's interesting. Um, so I'll just do a little brief advertisement for myself. Uh, we have we published a volume about a year and a half ago, rethinking reentry. Lots of good stuff in there uh, about where we might head on on reentry because much of what we have been doing just isn't. Um, Hasn't yielded the kind of change uh, that we'd like to see. So, uh, anybody who's interested in that, uh, you can go to the AEI website. Um, and And where can people follow you and Right on Crime?
1: Yeah, please go to um, Right on Crime uh, website, and you'll see um, we. You can see our team. You can see uh, the states that we're working in, and. Um, feel free to, to reach out. With our emails and social media and all of that, you know, I, I get people all the time that reach out to me and, uh, you know, I, I love it when they do because it's mostly people that want to know, how can I, you know, how can I start to work in this area?
0: Terrific. Well, Brett Tolman, thank you so much for your time and your insights and your commitment to one of the most important, I think, issues facing our country. And I look forward to staying in touch and hearing more about the progress that you're making. Likewise, and thank you for, for what you do and bringing this to the attention of so many. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well it feels like you're hardly working.